0: Welcome to etc. where we talk about all kinds of topics, some big, some small. And today I am hosting this episode without the benefit of Beth Milligan, who is pulled in a lot of directions during the summer because of her different jobs and her uh, different responsibilities. So I will be talking with a friend of both Beth and I today. His name is Lauren Michael. And I have a feeling by the time this conversation is done, we will have gone all over the map, not only globally, in a very real sense, but in terms of a lot of different topics. So, Lauren, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. And I'm just going to throw it your way to just tell us a little bit about yourself and make sure you lead that up to what has taken you to China.
1: Uh, Okay. Uh, Well, I've lived in China for the past, uh, I think, eight years Maybe for a total of 10 years. So I went there when I was in university and then I went back after university. Um, I, uh, what can I say? I like it there. I'm just visiting Traverse City again for, uh, I've been back for three weeks. I'm leaving, going back to China tomorrow. So
0: what are some of the different things you've done in China?
1: Uh, Different things I've done in terms of work? Yeah, yeah. uh, Well, I started off teaching. Uh, These days that still feels, that still feels a, a good chunk of my time. But uh, I'm doing a lot of writing-type tasks these days. I'm writing articles for magazines. Uh, I'm doing some copywriting for uh, products being sold on uh, Amazon and that sort of thing. And I'm uh, also doing some
0: translation work as well. So I'm going to back up eight years. When you first moved to China, Mm -hmm. uh, what was it like moving into such a remarkably different culture? At least I would think of it as a remarkably different culture. Maybe it's not as much as I think. What types of culture shocks or adjustments did you need to make when you moved there
1: um i was mostly thinking about it as lots of opportunities so like i wasn't noticing um like there's lots of problems like you can't drink the tap water we sort of take that for granted here it's like you know you know deal and drink water from the sink for example you can't do that in china and I get the—I have the understanding that that's actually true in a lot more countries. Like I, I went to Korea, and it's cleaner water there, but there's still like a stigma against drinking that sort of thing. Same in Taiwan. So small things like that. But I never really noticed that. That was just something you assumed early on. Um, I was more positive. So like it was sort of an opportunity to sort of you know start fresh, start a new, you know, start a new life. I didn't really have anything I was abandoning, but it was just sort of an opportunity to sort
0: of. Um, you know, start fresh, which is always a nice spin on things. So, You and I have talked before about how China is an honor-based culture in some ways. Mm -hmm. How does that play out practically? Because I don't think of the United States as an honor-based culture. I'm not actually sure what I think of us as a blank-based culture. But uh, I'm assuming there's a, a ripple effect of that, like just because of the kind of the philosophical undercurrent in the society, how does that play out differently on like a day-to-day basis?
1: I'd say that um, different cultures are more or less honor-based, and I'd say more conservative cultures are more honor-based than less conservative cultures. Um, so I'd say, for example, I'd say the American South uh, is more honor-based. Um, that's not to say that all Southerners are more conservative, although I think in that's... Uh, not a bad sort of general observation or general stereotype of them, uh, in America. But, uh, uh, you can have a honor-based culture that's more liberal than another honor-based culture, but I'd say in general, it's more conservative cultures. And China is a super conservative culture,
0: um, and it's, you know, getting less conservative, um, just as things go. Put some definition to conservative, because when I hear that, I think of the Republican Party here in the United States. And so that conservatism would include things like, at, at least in principle, um, smaller government. That's why I clarified in principle. Mm-hmm. Um, they would be against abortion. They would be pro-traditional family. They uh, they want their guns. Like I could give this list of things that we tend to associate with conservatism, but I feel like you mean something different than that when you talk about a connection between an honor-based culture and conservatism.
1: Sure. Well, um, to go with like abortion, for example, I think that's an incredibly significant issue. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a conservative, like it's sort of an objectively conservative issue. It's a an issue that conservatives in America are obviously deeply concerned about. Um, that doesn't make it a. An issue that is deeply connected to conservatism necessarily, though uh, conservatism is, uh, in my mind, uh, more about a focus on tradition, uh, traditional values, uh, and family. Um, sort of family is sort of like the, the sort of general unit that conservatives spend their time like focused on that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, so, uh, a conservative community may or may not support um, uh, like abortion or anti-abortion policies or, or preferences and that sort of thing so I'd say it's uh, American conservatives um, may be somewhat unique in caring about abortion as such um, you know in China they had sort of the, the one-child policy and conservatives in China ran the government so obviously you can't really say a Conservative in China was support uh, was against abortion, for example.
0: Hey, I hear you. It, it sounds like you're saying. Tell me if I get this right. You're relating conservatism with the group of people that want to con- want to continue the traditional norms of the culture. And as we move around the world, those traditional norm- norms can look very different. So we could have odd conservative bedfellows. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I'd say there's always going to be some
1: very common threads. So, For example, in China, there's, there is there is a deep focus on the family as sort of a, a, a core unit to care about, it's a, as a core sort of moral unit. Mm-hmm. Like you have sort of uh, very strong sort of family values, um, like children being loyal to family, uh, loyal to parents. You have uh, – there, it goes to such an extent that there's like ancestor worship, which is uh, people don't worship their ancestors per se. I feel like in America generally, but it's like you know you still sort of honor your heritage uh, in America. So it's um, I guess I'd say it's a little more secular in America, sort of that that family aspect to it, but it's still deeply important, like your roots, where you came from, that sort of thing. So I'd say that's a conservative uh, a conservative instinct that. Conservatives have, but again, it's not necessarily unique to conservatives. Even like I like, you know, people all all across the political spectrum can feel those sort of conservative tugs on their their moral and otherwise sort of heartstrings. But I feel like conservatives care about those. Um, maybe a little more deeply or they focus on those things a little more or they hang the rest of their ideologies on those
0: uh, structures. So I assume this would make a difference then in in terms of how people form allegiances. If you're conservative, by your definition, your primary allegiance is going to be to your family. Mm -hmm. Um, Once you unhook, well, and perhaps then also to your country if there's some sense of connectedness in terms of generations have built a particular thing, perhaps. I'm thinking of our founding fathers here in the United States. Mm -hmm. But it would sound then like a more liberal urging would be one that isn't necessarily tied into that allegiance and is much more willing to create allegiances elsewhere that might actually contradict the core of the conservative allegiance. Did that make sense? Um, Kind of. Well, let me go back to
1: sort of how conservatives would treat other, um, other groups, I guess. So... You know, I'd say the conservative core value is the family, uh, and then friends, and then you just sort of expand that circle outward to other people. You know, friends of friends, even, or just like people in the neighborhood, people in your town. So you can sort of sort of expand that circle of people you know and care about. Sort of that those relative social distances, and of course, the further you went, uh, the further away a person is, the less maybe they. Care or the rest, the less they want to have to do with you. Sort of the less they sort of enter into their thinking. Even it might not be hostile, but it's just less a part of their their circle of you know things that they're interested in and care about per se. So a liberal might uh, not share that uh, that core preference towards towards family. And again, I'm gonna say the conservatism is more of an instinct. So a liberal or a, a very non-conservative person of any political stripe is still going to feel that you know family um, family connection connections with friends you can't escape that like we should have sure. connections with friends yeah. nobody wants to get away from that but um, that's sort of a conservative instinct that ultimately uh, other ideologies might sort of be pulling away from they might retain them wholly too uh, depending how how they want to differ with conservatives
0: in general. I'm going to circle back to, I mentioned some key issues in conservative camps here in the United States. One would be abortion. Another one would be the issue of marriage. And it can be very contentious. And uh, anybody who follows anything on social media or even the news knows these continue to be hot topics that often generate more heat than light. Have you noticed in China that there are any particular kind of social or political issues that tend to be very divisive culturally?
1: Um. Well, uh, yes. Uh, Marriages, uh, well, for a long time, China has had uh, very traditional arranged marriages. Uh, Not all families do this, but there's always sort of a deep, really intense pressure on uh, younger people to get married. And they would get married in order to have children. Uh, And that has been a thing that younger, more independent-minded people are against. And I'd say that's a great example of conservative values, get married, have kids. Those are the conservative values. Is the arranging also part of that? Uh, yes, I'd say okay. arranging is, again, that's sort of the family sort of taking, um, taking – Let's say primacy over the individual. Yeah, it's yeah. like the individual, gotcha. the the kid, doesn't choose what he does. His father, his mother, they choose what the what the son does. Okay. They choose what the daughter does. They lose agency to the family. Uh, it's the family's concern to expand the family, to promote the family's interests, uh, and you know having kid you know do stupid things <laughs> that aren't good for the family is not in the family's interests. So. In that case in arranged marriages the family knows best and does best mm-hmm. and the fam- the the children don't really have any choice in the matter and i'd say going and that's a that's a traditional value that is not just a chinese thing you can see that all over the world yeah um historically as far as i know that's been th- a thing in europe as well even in um i think even in sort of modern times but more conservative subcultures in more modern communities will have arranged marriages or a lot of input from the parents even. At least
0: protecting the name of the family would be something that's very important. Yeah,
1: and it's, there's also, uh, it's not just a black and white thing. There's It's not just arranged marriages and unarranged. There's a long continuum between extremes. Like, you can just have a lot of input from the family. You know, my father or mother wouldn't approve of this relationship, for example. Uh, and, you know, their input, that's, you know, that's still a form of arranged marriage in essence, right? That's still them having sort of maybe not a hard veto power, but a lot of influence. I mean, there's always the, well, that's a conservative point yeah, of view, I guess. Yeah. Uh,
0: where are you seeing this split in culture? Is there a movement that's really pushing back against that? I'd say, um, you know, people see, people in China see
1: and read hear all kinds of stories about, you you hear a romantic story and that goes, again, like romance by its very nature is doing something because your heart tells you to and not because your family tells you to. So the more people are exposed to stories about, you know, sort of fundamentally selfish desires, Mm -hmm. but they're also romantic, uh, the more they push against that. The more they see their friends being happily married and uh, their They feel their parents pushing them into an unhappy relationship with somebody that they don't like, uh, the more they feel, the more they sort of rail against or feel that anger about that sort
0: of situation. And I would guess the more we get Western entertainment influencing Chinese culture, most of the romances that we see uh, that are put out by the United States, for example, would very much be. Follow your emotions. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Get swept off your feet. And the more that's ubiquitous in China, the more I would have to assume that becomes part of what's changing how people are thinking about things.
1: Yeah, and I'd say that's that's of course not just a Western thing. Like every culture in the world has individuals feeling you know, that that's you know every individual has their own selfish desires, and we sort of charitably reinterpret those as romantic desires. Um, and I feel like it's right to do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but really, it's sort of you know, if you're from the perspective of a family, it's it's pretty selfish selfish for your kid to like want to do his own thing and you know, not be grateful and you know follow the family's desires. Um, every culture has that, I and mean, there's romantic stories in, as far as I know, every culture ever. Mm-hmm. Just because at our core, as as people, we all have those desires, and some of us more or less than others, we have regrets, our hopes and dreams, and that sort of thing. And that is sort of the the impetus for those romantic stories and those sort of, this is, this is sort of the key, those romantic and fundamentally anti-conservative stories, at least anti-conservative in that sort of family, filial piety, sort of like honor
0: your father and mother, sort of uh, honor their wishes sort of stories. So are you finding yourself, the longer you're in China, are you finding yourself drawn toward that more traditional conservative approach to the world, or has seeing it a little more clearly played out had the reverse effect and made you think actually like the more I'll call it liberal approach to life. Uh, no, by
1: much more liberal the second part there, like just the more I see sort of very conservative families uh, in that sort of like and that sort of like very top-down control like from the. father and mother like them sort of exercising so much control over their their children uh and just i i see i don't have that much contact with the parents but i see how that's just messing up young people uh just people constantly being pressured to be in a relationship even when they're not necessarily ready is Mm -hmm. the thing it's like people the thing is in china um the Chinese school system doesn't give uh, people and en- doesn't give children, students, any autonomy until they're 18. So they spend their entire week, they literally only have maybe two, maybe four hours of free time, uh, of uninterrupted free time uh, a week, you know, maybe on a Sunday evening. If a they finish, week? A week, yes. Wow. Uh, they don't have any autonomy. And if it's not doing homework for school, it's doing extracurricular classes or activities you know, some of it's fun. It's like, you know, soccer camp, that sort of thing. Um, it's, it can be fun, but they're constantly busy and they don't have the time to do their own thing. So a lot of times Chinese, uh, Chinese kids, they finish high school and then that's their, their one opportunity. They have their university time to sort of explore themselves. And as soon as they're in university, that's when sort of the, the pressure starts to build to find somebody to start a family with, and it's immediate. Uh, and then as soon as you graduate, that's when it starts being really, really important. Um, like once somebody is in their late twenties uh, and they don't have a husband or wife, uh, people start to worry, um, and that's I feel like that's really terrible for the individual. There is uh, when you get. Well, if you get married, not because you want to marry somebody, but because your family wants you to marry somebody, that's that's good for for conservatism, but that's terrible for the individual, and that's terrible for romantic and I feel like really healthy marriages, um, or just good relationships. That's not to say it can't work. There's been a lot of, like successful arranged marriages. Yeah, but I don't. It's not something I would wish
0: on anybody. So I'm fascinated by this two to four hours a week of free time. There's been a lot of discussion in the States recently about how ordered children's lives are. Mm -hmm. And this could be – it's not as ordered as what you're describing. But the way I saw this show up first was in a discussion about sports because I used to do a lot of coaching. Mm -hmm. And they would take, for example, the basketball player. That if you were always in an ordered, structured kind of venue for playing basketball, you never really learned what it was like to just love the sport and to really kind of learn it in a at a deep level such that it became ingrained in you in a way that was somewhat natural. How do you do this? Pick up games. You throw kids in a gym for a couple hours and don't give them anything to do and make them figure it out. Like unstructured free time. Unstructured free time. And so – that first started showing up at sports at least where I saw it. I've seen it show up more and more in discussion of kids, especially those who live in very competitive cities where in order to keep getting into the best schools you have to keep building your resume and maybe this is what's happening in China, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you can't just go to class. you have to have X amount of extracurriculars. You have to be in these amount of sports and you end up structuring your entire life. And it strikes I'm building me building a resume basically. Yes, you're yeah. building your resume. And then you get out of high school and you either go to university or enter the job market. You do something like that. And now suddenly you're an 18, 19-year-old who's never gotten used to what it looks like to manage free time in a particular way. You, you might never have been put into situations where there's any kind of significant decision-making required. And now you're starting to make some of the biggest decisions of your life without having built any decision-making muscle.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, would you see... I mean, that's one of my concerns here in the States. Do you see that same thing playing out in China? I feel like China has, like, been doing that for a long time. Uh, I don't
1: know enough about the history of that to say why exactly it is that way. And it's not just China. Uh, Japan and Korea both are sort of notorious for, like, really hardworking, uh, uh, really hard-working uh, high school, middle school, etc. students. Um, and maybe less famously, so their university systems are really easy and and relaxed. Like they sort of assume that that time is when kids, when young adults Hmm. can finally get a chance to like relax and do their own thing. So the idea is they work really hard to pass a certain exam to get into the right school. And then once they're there, it doesn't really matter anymore. You got into the school and now you can like, as long as you got that. Stamp on your resume, that's what's really important. Uh, I agree with you though, like, uh, there's sort of a danger of people not knowing how to manage their own time or just like having to overstructure it. People, like, to me, it sort of suggests that maybe people just won't be that creative ultimately. It's like people really won't really mm-hmm. know how to use their time in ways that are interesting, they'll just use their
0: time as ways to spend that time. So, I have this image in my mind, Lauren, of China. Uh-huh when it comes to things like uh, politics and the intersection of politics and free speech, I have this view that there's somewhat a monolithic view that everyone shares in China. Um, My perception is that media is very controlled, that people don't really have access to information. And so there's kind of this lockstep approach to life. And I, I'm quite certain that is not nuanced enough, but I don't know how badly I have botched my view. What Can you give a little insight in your eight years of living there? What is life like just in the general population in terms of the issues I just brought up or take it any other direction you want to also? Well, I'm going to say both you and I kind of live in a bubble. Like both
1: of us sort of consume news as a hobby. It's... Um, Like, we might sort of justify it as sort of a social responsibility to be informed and that sort of thing, but I'd say ultimately it's really just a hobby. We do it because it's fun. Um, uh, And in China people are just sort of a little bit less inclined to do that just because it seems sort of like the game is fixed. Like the the hobby itself is, mm. it's like you sort of know who's going to win. Like you read the news, you know who's good and who's bad uh, based on the news. I'd say if you read sort of exclusively partisan or you read or consume exclusively partisan news, uh, it's if you are that partisan, it makes you feel better about yourself. But it's, it, you know, some people like to just, Constantly be told how good and right they are. You know, Chinese people like to be told how good and right sort of China is or how well China's doing and that sort of thing. Um, But a lot of people just don't read the news. Um, And that's not just in China, that's in America as well. Like, we just don't really choose to spend a lot of time talking to people who don't really share, uh, you know, at least a few of our interests, um, who don't, um, you know, play our games, read our books, listen to our music, go to our church, etc. Um, we just tend not to spend that much time with them, so we don't really know about them. And so in China, there's uh, people just don't consume the news that would maybe put them in lockstep. Um, people hear about things that happen. Um, you know, something terrible or something very good happens. There's an earthquake. People hear about that, of course. But in general, people just don't read the news um, as much as you or I would. Um, and so you, interpersonally, you see a lot of a, – a huge amount of diversity. Um, uh, now, other news is limited. So people's perspective on things is really limited in China, um, particularly concerning Chinese – like people are mostly ignorant in China about China. I was
0: just going to ask, do did they, did they have a holistic view of the – of the benefits and the hardships of living in China. No, um, peop- that,
1: that's yeah. Let me, let me just reiterate what I just said. People in China, like to the extent that they're ignorant, they're 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 a little bit like America insofar as they're broadly ignorant about the rest of the world, just because China's big enough that they don't have to care. Yeah. But then they're also deeply ignorant about China itself. Americans probably are pretty ignorant about America <laughs> itself too, I should say, but um, I'd say less so because they're there, uh, there's less of a, what's the word? Uh, there's less restriction in America, obviously. Um, but people can
0: choose to be pretty ignorant. I'll give you another example. And I think this is a part of the dilemma of China being so big and having different provinces that can be remarkably different. I'll read articles in the U S about the persecution of Christians, for example, in China, or there's also been a recent crackdown on Muslims. Mm-hmm. And if I remember right from talking with you before, one interesting thing about China is that, we'll read in the news, China, mm-hmm. but it's not, and I just did air quotes for people listening, but that doesn't mean it's all of China. It could be a particular province is taking that approach, but it's not mirrored or maybe not even supported by other provinces, and perhaps even people with China don't fully know what's happening in the other provinces of China. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's that's fair to say. Okay. which So I think that would make the United States a little bit different. And that we don't have that sharp of a distinction. And while you certainly have different things happening in particular states, because of access to the media now, generally it can hit everybody's radar if they're looking for it.
1: Yeah, China controls all of its own media. So, um, well, um, to a pretty big extent, like there's just very little bad news in China. Um, If uh, I remember – so I live in Hangzhou, which is about two hours – about three hours by car away from um, Shanghai. It's about an hour by train, um, very close to Shanghai. Hangzhou is a very, very, very rich city in China. Uh, it's sort of the tech capital of China. Uh, a lot of the biggest uh, Chinese corporations are based in, uh, biggest tech corporations are based in um, Hangzhou. Um, now, I want to say five years ago, maybe, uh, I was walking down the street and I witnessed... What I believe was maybe a kind of terrorist incident. I uh, saw a bus. It had just started to um, uh, burn and smoke just prior to me coming onto it, it prior to me encountering it, and they were dragging people from that bus. I saw some people who looked pretty badly burned. It was pretty horrifying. Uh, I didn't see anything about that on the news that day hmm. or any time after that. I saw some things shared on social media and a few very, very brief um observations about it but it was something i thought i felt would be very significant anywhere else in the world um it looked like a few people probably died um and it just was brushed under the carpet it was bad news Mm. and as such it just wasn't really important and to some extent that's kind of how you should treat terrorism um like, nobody's scared in China hmm. yeah. of terrorists. Um, most most things that people are, terror- are scared about are things that they actually
0: were so big that they, you know... Uh, well, Well, a lot of the power of terrorism is how it changes a culture.
1: Yeah, well, I, I feel like uh, a, a media that's as cynical and as controlled as Chinese media is actually very good at dealing with
0: terrorism, um, sort of horrifyingly. Um, well, no, that's an interesting point, though, Lauren, because... One of the things I've noticed is that China does not seem to have a terrorism problem. So it actually raised a couple of questions in my mind. Do I just think that because China won't report any acts of terrorism? Or do the terrorists perhaps just see that it's pointless because they go do something and it just doesn't have the kind of ripple effect or impact that they would like it to have? It
1: definitely goes both ways. But um, the stuff you see happening um – With Muslims in China, that is definitely based on, uh, that comes, stems from terrorist acts committed by separatists, um, because, well, China has a, a province that has a large number of people who don't feel like they are or should belong to China, um, and, uh, that's sort of the explanation for why that's happening right now, is that is pretty strongly based in a series of terrorist incidents, um that were reasonably well-publicized within China, actually. Okay. So, um, terrorism has been a problem, but I I feel like in general, um, yeah, just because of the the control over the mass media, like, terrorism can't possibly be as successful in China, unless the Chinese government wants to use terrorism
0: to promote an agenda. Sure. This sounds very Orwellian to some degree.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, if, if you want to promote fear of a certain group, you can easily just sort of blow up the importance of individual acts like if you I, I don't think that's hard or
0: no it's not and i would say i noticed the same thing in the united states it's what um in my ethics class we talk about some informal fallacies of thinking and one is called the spotlight fallacy where you shine a spotlight on a particular event or individual or thing and if you shine the spotlight on it enough people begin to assume that's what's true mm-hmm. and one place you see that happening here is in coverage Whenever an illegal immigrant does a crime, you shine the spotlight on that. And as a result, it makes it appear as if, as a demographic, they pose much more of a physical threat to people in the United States than they actually do. So when I say it sounds Orwellian, what you describe in China, I don't even mean that in counter-distinction to what other nations are able to do with manipulation of the news as well.
1: Yeah, and It's not just... uh... Well, in China, the government controls it, so in that case, it it is a little more Orwellian in that sense, but if anybody has, anybody who controls media can elect to make all kinds of factors salient. If somebody kills somebody, you can talk about what race that person is, um, what that person reads, um... You know, these days nobody cares about what what music you listen to. But a long time ago, people cared if you listened to like Marilyn Manson and that sort of thing. Um, I feel like people got over that pretty nicely. Um, but if you control, if you're making a story, if you're sen- sensationalizing something, then you have the ability to make those factors more or less salient. And, sure. Yeah. Um.
0: I'm- I'm curious about um, an issue that's in our news right now, the whole question of tariffs at the United States and China basically being in a tariff war. It, it seems to garner a lot of attention in the United States and it seems to have a significant impact on certain groups of people, farmers for example. Is this a big issue in China uh, or is it once again one where it's not covered so people don't know, um, it is covered, people don't care? Is there actually an impact playing out? I mean the the end game I think from this administration's perspective is that if you put enough pressure and, and raise the stakes enough, China will have to buckle. Do you get any sense for the Chinese response to this where you are? I personally have been insulated
1: from this, but I do know that it is uh, a big thing in China. Like it's very important um, – because Chinese industry is so uh, uh, well interconnected, um, but China is starting to decouple from the rest of the world, which is kind of a, in my opinion, a problem. It's like you want China to be as connected as possible. Um, you just want those connections to be fair, is the idea. Um, but sort of a worrying trend that I have, I haven't seen personally, but I've been made aware of, is that China is starting to just. Uh, sever more and more of its ties. It's making it more and more bif- difficult for foreigners to do business in China, uh, and it's making itself a little bit more self-reliant. Um, mm. So that's bad for a lot of people, um, and it is like the the trade war is in part. Uh, you know, that's not the reason, but that's certainly helping things along or adding um, more kindling to the fire.
0: Since you moved to China, and like you said, it's been eight years now, as you come back and visit the United States or just read about what's happening, because I know you're a a very avid follower of current events. um, I'm wondering if you, uh, as you think of the United States, are there certain things that you now contrast with China in such a way that you think, "Ah, this was pretty good, this might have been a better system to live in than I realized, and are there certain things – that you look at now and go, actually, I, I think this might not have been as good as I thought. Like, is distance giving you a perspective on the United States where it's revealing some things that might be better than you thought, but also some things that might be worse than you thought?
1: Um, I, 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 the most obvious thing is just, like, freedom of speech, I guess. I feel like this is one thing that America just happens to do better than the rest of the world. Like, I'm a pretty big um, america s- Cynic about America being, air quotes, like the greatest country in the world. Uh, free speech, though, I feel like is great, um, and so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And also just sort of seeing American um, media's influence in other countries, like just uh, yeah, America or even just the, uh, well, American and British media. Let's say, like Harry Potter, for example, um, I feel like is. Unbelievably popular in China, likewise with the Marvel films, um, just like those big, like tentpole movies just do a lot of work at sort of making, let's say Western values acceptable, um, at, at promoting Western values, uh, in places that would otherwise not really have a good window into them. Um, like those movies are just fantastic at, um, uh, spreading values that I share actually, okay. um, so I'm really grateful to uh, to Hollywood um, and to, Mer- to free speech laws. Um, feel like they're great for promoting art. Um, also, music. Um, same thing. It's like people can you know listen to all kinds of music. Uh, music is a little less influ- influential in China than movies, but it's still a, a big factor there. Um, so I've I've always been happy with all those things. But um, even just sort of the garbage, trashy movies. Um, I feel like they still have value when they're when they're you know, well, they're sort of garbage by sort of artistic standards, but they're still fine by just sort of like promoting you know even sort of like dumb American values are still pretty good compared to a lot of the um mm. to a lot of values that they come up against, I feel like um and there's a lot of bad American values too. I'm not talking about those, but sure. um you know a lot of like stuff that's not very artistic can still be ultimately culturally valuable, uh, even if it's not that
0: significant per se on its own. Is there anything you've noticed in China that you think they do better than we do that you would like to see um, grow here?
1: I have to think about that. Um, Well, yeah, they're much better at building cities. Um, They have – I feel like there's a lot of – there's almost too much autonomy Uh, in cities in America. We can't build cities that work relative to China. Um, And it's not just China. Japan's much better at it, too. Um, Taiwan, Hong Kong, which has a different system than China, even if it's uh, technically part of China. Um, uh, Singapore, like that part of the world has figured out how to do cities really well. Um, And they're great at developing cities that work. Hmm. My favorite thing, uh, living in Hangzhou, which again is just a really well-connected city, uh, just because it's a, again, a tech hub capital of China. Um, it's unbelievably clean. Um, there is biking infrastructure everywhere. It's a huge city, but, uh, you don't really, I don't own a car there. I don't want to own a car there. I don't have, I don't have a need to own a car there in part just because there's great mass transportation, but also just because I can ride my bike anywhere in town. There's always a... Really nice, safe, and like segregated from the rest of the the roads, like bike path for me. Um, So yeah, I'll say just building infrastructure and, you know, saying to the the not-in-my-backyard-type people, like, look, uh, you know, the needs of you, the individual homeowner, are maybe significant sometimes, but we have a city to build, I'm sorry. And um, I like that. Uh, There's... and a lot of places in China still retain a lot of their original character uh, They well, China's been building like big stuff for a long time uh, and they've been really good at that so uh, hmm. I like that uh, yeah I'm very pro big cities or just very into developing cities in like good and meaningful ways and I feel like China is not alone in just being very good at that
0: Alright I don't even know how long we've been talking Lauren but I think I need to get us to our last official topic so Lorna and I, for the sake of the listeners, Lorna and I first met in a coffee shop here in Traverse City, and it was a group of a lot of college students and a few of us, quote unquote, adults, who were getting together and we were talking about politics and religion and ethics and law and all kinds of stuff, probably for several years, I think. Mm-hmm. So this question kind of stems back to those days. Growing up in the United States, which is... In some ways, a Christian nation in the sense that Judeo-Christian values were very formative in its history and and at least has a lingering kind of impact and formation of everyone who lives here, whether they think of themselves as Christian or not. Mm -hmm. Moving to China, which that's just not part of Chinese history. They would have come from much more of a, I think, a strict... More of an atheist background, but it would be Buddhism, is that correct? Yeah. Shintoism, perhaps both of that, those? Well, Shinto is a Japanese thing, but more Buddhist, definitely. Okay.
1: Buddhist, Taoist, yeah.
0: And I know you have visited South Korea, you visited Japan, you've had interesting experiences in a number of places in that area of the world. Mm-hmm. But I'm just curious how living in these very contrasting cultures in some ways, in terms of the history of the more spiritual and philosophical nature of development, um, has it changed the way you view the world at all has it changed your appreciation for the different approaches that you've seen I, I'm throwing a very vague question at you just what does your formation look like in this sense as you've broadened your experiences around the world
1: um well first of all let me say like a long time ago maybe I would have I would have I'll say, ignorantly disagree with you about, like, America being Christian, that sort of thing. Like, my views on that have evolved pretty significantly. I I totally agree with you uh, about, sort of, uh, Christianity's importance and, um, what's the word? It's omnipresence in American culture, I guess.
0: It's kind of the hum in the background,
1: if nothing else. Exactly. I, I, yes, I would not disagree with that at all. I I totally agree uh, with that. Um, at the same time, it's really hard for me to like pick out any one string or thread about like how exactly that's informed me. It's just a, a realization you read enough history, um, you know, sort of big history books like uh, like Guns, Germs, and Steel, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. things that sort of tell you like here's how the world has evolved. The more of those kinds of things you read, the more you just sort of suss out like these kinds of like big imperceptible factors that have shaped uh, cultures over time. So I it's really hard for me to say that like China is uh different because of its particular religious background or that sort of thing. China's very different uh culturally than America. Um and it's always hard to talk about big culture things cuz there's there's always exceptions. So like one thing is a uh, um for example, in China, a, a strange thing happened. Uh, my, first, my first year there when I was back in university, this was in 2007, um, my first winter there, I, I slipped and fell in some ice and I didn't know it, but I, I lost my wallet. My wallet fell in my pocket. Uh, it had my ID in it and my credit cards and a bunch of other things. Uh, I went back to my dorm not knowing that I'd lost my wallet and uh, I felt around my pocket and then realized. And as, as I was frantically calling my parents to cancel my cards, um, a security guard came to my door, a college security guard came to my door and told me some people had found my wallet. And it had um, had about $120 U.S. In, uh, in it, and they just brought it back. And that's something I wouldn't have expected in China. And these days I still wouldn't expect that to happen in China, but it did. Um, so there's always exceptions like that. Like like that changed my that changed my assumptions about China somewhat, but I still feel like just in general, there's a lot less, um, care about people you don't know in China. Um, people, you know, if you see somebody stealing from somebody else on the subway or bus or whatever, most people will just sort of revert to that's not my problem. Uh, that's, that's their problem. Most people won't stand up for other people.
0: Um, Whereas in the United States, you'd be likely to have at least one bystander step in and try to stop. It. Yeah, I, I feel like the somebody else's problem instinct is
1: is pan cultural. It's it's all over the world, um, but some cultures do better at sort of you know having one guy stand up and do the right thing than others. Um, and I feel like America does that a little bit better. Like you know, to put it sort of more bluntly, there's always. There's always like one asshole in the who's able to sort of stand up and maybe do you know sometimes does the wrong thing but sometimes does the right thing. Um, and I feel like there's there's few people like that. You know, uh, Chinese individuals have sort of been hammered down pretty significantly to not uh, stand up for themselves or other people. Um, and I feel like that's to China's detriment overall. Hmm. Um, like there's less. Uh, trust in society. There's less trust in, stran- in strangers in China. I feel like, uh, and that's not to say that strangers don't do great things. There's all kinds of stories. Sure. Um, you know, like it's conflicting instincts. Like we feel bad for other people. We have empathy. Everybody has empathy. And there's always people who stand up and do. The- there always is that potential for people to stand up and do the right thing. And you can have society encourage that or discourage that and people you know even in societies like america where i'd say we encourage a little more people still fail to do the right thing constantly uh people fail to stand up and do what's right constantly in america uh and in china where people are i'd say far more discouraged from standing up and doing the right thing again for themselves or others there's still people who do that so uh, I'd say just the, the general bias is in the wrong direction in China, and the general bias is in the right direction
0: in America hmm. in that respect. All right, so I have a question to ask you. I'm a Christian pastor. People who listen to this know this. Lauren is neither of those. And But I'm going to ask you a question about your observation of what's happening in the United States in terms of evangelicalism the church politics etc in the eight years you've been gone mm-hmm. and I know you've come back and visited sometimes it feels to me like there's been a fairly seismic shift in American Christendom and particularly American evangelicalism that can track pretty closely with the rise of Trump's presidency mm-hmm. have you had any observations and I don't know if it's like from a distance as you're reading news from China or where you come back to visit. Mm-hmm. And I know you don't necessarily have a vested interest in, <laughs> in giving me advice on this, but I'm just curious, what trends, do you see a trend happening in uh, the church or Christians or evangelicalism in America? And do you have any thoughts or observations about that? As someone watching from half a world away... Um, but also someone watching with more of a, uh, dispassionate eye than I would being in the midst of it.
1: Um, well, I'd say like the, I'm, I'm very not religious and I used to be very, um, let's say anti-religious. Like I used to read Sam Harris and all the other, like, now I sort of think like really annoying, sort of like new atheist type people. Like I still think Richard Dawkins is a really smart guy in his field, but he's kind of dumb about religion. Likewise with Sam Harris. I used to read them a lot.
0: You're, I used to think of you as what I would call an angry atheist. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't I'd, thought of you like that for years. Yeah, I,
1: I would say I, I used to be that way, definitely. Um, well, it's strange. Like, I've come to appreciate Christianity a lot more, again, just reading, let's say, big history books. Um, I've come to see sort of religion just as a, as a uh, – I'd say, well, to me, it's not necessarily a, a correct thing, but I'd say it's still a valuable thing. It's not uh, –
0: um, it doesn't poison everything <laughs>
1: yeah, does, yeah yes, yes. it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't poison everything
0: and that's when the recording of the podcast I was doing with Lauren faded out and I'm not sure why so I have to chop off the last three or four minutes of our discussion and I apologize for that but thanks again Lauren for taking the time to talk with us here at Cetera. if you'd like to listen to more of our podcast go to etcetera Thanks again.